Where's my medicine remix? Guys, come on, get to it. You got a job to do. You got a community waiting for your opinions. Chop, chop. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Medicine Remix. What to do, Remix Crew? It's your boy Reesh. It's your podcast, Medicine Remix. And we're gearing up for season three of Medicine Remixed. I know it's been a minute since we released an episode, so wanted to update the faithful listeners of MRX that we're still kicking. A lot going on behind the scenes at Team Remix right now. All good things. We're trying to expand our team so we can bring you content more consistently. And we actually started an agency making podcasts for medical education companies, other doctors and hospitals, so we can bring in some funds to grow our team, which is why we've ramped down our Medicine Remixed output from a near daily podcast at the beginning of last year to a weekly podcast at the end of last year. We scrappy, but we out here grinding. So for the longtime Medicine Remix listeners and fans, if you're listening, thank you for still supporting us and being patient with us. No way we would still be doing this without y'all. So thank you so much. But today's episode, I think, is a treat for both longtime listeners and new listeners. Yes, sir. I gave you guys and gals a quick forecast on where Medicine Remixed is headed, but not many people have heard where we've been as far as our origin story. So this episode is actually an interview D and I did with Patrick Daniel from a phenomenal podcast called The Great Everything. Patrick is a great interviewer and a kindred spirit of sorts that we came up with in the early days of Anchor, where both our podcasts were among the inaugural class of featured podcasts by Anchor in late 2016, early 2017. Definitely check out his podcast, which we will link up in the show notes. He's a philosophical beast and a huge hip-hop head on top of that. He started out as a corporate lawyer in London until he saw the light and quit, as he says to pursue his passion for culture, art, and transformation. But in this interview with Patrick, we talk about a lot of things we've never really shared about why D&I wound up in medicine, why we started Medicine Remixed in the first place, and all the raw stuff in between. So I think there's a lot of great stories and insights in this conversation. We touch on the topic of career change, which I think a lot of people can relate to. So hopefully you find this episode valuable in your own quests to figure out what to do with your futures. I think this episode will be a great start to the third season because we'll be focusing more on conversations, interviews, and dialogue this upcoming season since it seems that that's the type of content that y'all been digging the most from us based on our review of our first two seasons. But without further ado-do, let's get into this interview with Patrick Daniel of The Great Everything to introduce ourselves to new listeners and reintroduce ourselves to old listeners. I think y'all will enjoy it. You're listening to the one and only Medicine Remix. Allow me to reintroduce myself. So you got an Indian, a Jippo, and a Jew. And yeah. uh, none of them can use a phone. <laughs> That's the end of the joke. So, guys, uh, thank you for joining me on this. I think uh, we're going to have some fun. And um, I guess... Long time coming. Yeah, long time coming. I, I guess um, what I want to do here is... Uh, well, first of all, I'm sure that people know who you guys are. But it would be um, helpful to, uh, to, for you guys to introduce yourselves on Medicine Remix. So what I think I, is most interesting to people is this element of career change that you really 
have something to say about. And that is because I get the feeling, and I haven't run the numbers or anything, but I get the feeling that a lot of people who come onto uh, platforms like Anchor, a lot of people who start their own podcasts, a lot of them are in situations similar to the one that you were in. You are serious professionals, you know, allegedly. You're doctors, right? right? <laughs> so, so you have all the kind of thing that everyone aspires to be. You know that, that that's like uh, you grow up, you become a lawyer, you become a doctor, you become a surgeon. These are the big things that you should be aspiring to. They're the goal that you reach, and yet mm. you are thinking about and you've implemented steps to transition into something that is more creative. And I think that a lot of people have this same dilemma of wanting to make that transition into something more fulfilling, more creative maybe, but being scared to do it for a number of reasons because there's so much security and prestige in what you guys already do. So to sort of sum that all up, you guys are in a serious profession. You're doctors and you're transitioning into creative roles. Why do that? And what's there for you? Rish, you, you mind if I? Yeah, please, um, please. So, and actually, I believe Rish will have a more valuable answer because um, <laughs> I think his will be more structured because even though I think you know the storyline already, and the storyline is we didn't grow up only thinking our whole lives we wanted to be doctors. And, of course. and then got to the, you know, the Holy Land and then were disappointed. That, that's not what happened. We were disappointed yeah. well before we arrived. And, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and I think part of that, for me anyway, I think it's important to understand like the backdrop is I'm a first generation everything, high school graduate, college graduate. When I've graduated from high school with no bullet wounds and no children, like my family was like, this motherfucker made it. Like he's, that's it. <laughs> like he's done. And now he's supposed to get a job at Sears or Macy's or JCPenney, work his way up into middle management, find a nice girl, marry her, make a baby, buy a house and then die. Like that was like, everybody was so happy that I was going to be able to do that. And I was a good student in high school. I played sports. I, I had the tools to go on, but I didn't know how the fuck that happened. I didn't know who to talk to, how to go about it. And um, I just backed out. I pulled out of everything. I said, I'm not, I got to just work. I was working at a burger joint throughout high school. My paycheck, I would literally take the paycheck, give it to mom and she would take it to the liquor store where the owner knew her and he would cash it with no ID, no nothing. And she would pay the water and the light bill and whatever was left over was mine. So my little shitty $150 check I got every two weeks, um, I'd get like 30 or 40 bucks. And that was just what it was. And when I expressed to my mom, hey, ma, I think I want to go to college. My mom was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You mean you want to go back to school and give them money so you could read more books? What the fuck is wrong with you? Like, She's way ahead of her time. Yeah, 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 yeah. But she was her, her in her head. It was like, dude, you're turning your back on the family. Like, we need you. You are a right. contributing member to this family. And if you leave, how the fuck are we going to pay the water and the light bill? You're selfish. What are you doing? And I didn't have an answer. I didn't have like this structured like, no, mom, this is how it works. I'm going to go pursue higher education. That's going to, you know, lay the foundation to get me into med school. And then I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a doctor and I'm going to be able to, you know, do all the, none of that. All I knew was I don't want to do that. And all I knew was if I stuck around, 
I was fucked because I saw it happen all the time. And I had, you know, family members who were tremendous athletes, fucked it all up. I had, you know, dudes who were real hard working, fucked it all up. And I just said, you know what? I just want to go to college. I don't know why, but I think in the movies, you're supposed to learn like who you are in college. That was really what I thought. And um, by that point, it was too late. I had turned down like scholarship offers I had. I was afraid. I didn't know what to do. And my buddy, Brian came up to the register at the, at the burger joint and just said, Hey man, uh, you're going to college, right? And I was literally at work at like at the register. He said, you're going to college, right? And I said, uh, nah. And he goes, Oh man, what was your GPA? And I told him and he was like, Oh shit, dude, you need, you're supposed to go to college. And I'll never forget that because the look on his face was like, dude, very obvious. The next step here is you go to college. And mm. I, I was like baffled by it. And I said, mm, yeah, I don't know, man. And he, he just goes, what time are you off? And I said, six o'clock. He said, all right, I'm gonna come by your house. We, we played basketball on the same team, he and I. And uh, he came by that night and he said, hey, I'm moving to Fresno, which is in central California. And he said, my uncle has a house and we can stay there for a little bit. And then I'll get an apartment. I'll pay all the bills for three months. You find a job and then um, you apply next year to get into Fresno State. And I literally sitting on my couch, my mom came home from work. I wasn't looking at her when I said this. She walked behind the couch and I said, hey, Ma, I'm moving to Fresno tomorrow. And she goes, no, you're not. And she just went to her room. And Brian looked at me like, uh, are, we, are we still doing this? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she came back. I said, hey, Ma, I'm moving to Fresno tomorrow. She goes, no, you're not. And changed the oil in the truck. And that was it. That was like my conversation with my mom. Dude, two days later, I had a suitcase and we were in Fresno. And Have you uh, spoken to your mom since. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's, a, that's a funny question because my mom stopped talking to me for like four years. Oh, okay. Well. Yeah. And here, here's why. Here's why. Check this out. So in the States, you, when you apply for financial aid, until you're like 25, you're considered a dependent. So you, you have to include your parents' uh, income tax papers. So, you know, my, my pops has never been involved and my mom, the year came up when I had to apply. And that's even funny because we lived in some shitty apartment across the street from school. And one day I was just like, I think I got to go to that school to ask them like how to apply. I don't know how to apply. And I walked up on campus. It's this giant campus, 40,000 students. And I walked up, walked into the building. You know, those little like uh, when they like portray like the DMV in movies, it's just that little piece of glass with a hole in it that you talk to. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I walked up to that fucking window and I just, I remember I felt like such an idiot, but I just sucked up my pride and I leaned into that little fucking hole and I said, uh, excuse me, I don't know what to do, but I want to go to school here. And the lady looked at me and I'll never forget, it was this big black lady. And she, she looked at me and she, and she, she goes, honey, that's, that's real sweet and that's good, but this is the parking department. <laughs> and, and she goes, you need to go to the admissions building. And I was like, oh, fuck this, man. I'm out of here. Fuck school. Fuck, I'm, a, I'm not made for this, man. And I, I walked out of that building and literally the next building in giant fucking letters says admissions building on it. And I was just like, man, fuck. Okay, whatever. I walked in there. I said the same thing. And they pretty much said, all right, well, here's what you need to do. And you need to fill out, fill out your financial aid. And at that point, I said, what do I need for that? And they said, you need your parents' income tax. And I, I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And the lady just kind of looked at me. She's like, yeah, you just get that from your parents. And I said, that's ah, a long story, but my mom's not going to do that. And I'll never forget it. The lady's name was Willene Howe. She worked in the financial aid department. I walked over to that department and I told her the same thing. And she said, what's your phone number? And I gave her my mom's phone number. My mom picked up. 
And I said, hey, Ma, I need, and my mom was just like, click. And I just looked at Willene like, all right, you believe me now? Like, she's not, <laughs> she's not, my mom, she, she's very upset, man. She's not, it's not going to happen. So she said, okay, what you need to do is you need to fill out this paperwork and, and sign this letter saying you're independent. You're, you're by yourself. And that was the start of it because I filed for everything as an independent entity. I, I had no uh, financial support, none of that shit. And then I was in college with no fucking major not knowing what the fuck I was doing, just taking philosophy classes, arguing about Kant. I didn't know shit other than what I read the night before. Like I, all I knew was like, this is amazing. Like I, I love learning shit. I love just absorbing shit that I'd never heard of. I remember getting mad because I didn't know what a pride of lions was. I didn't know shit. I went to shitty public schools. My final in chemistry class, my senior year was to wash my glassware, like literally wash the shit I used in lab. That was my final. So no one was teaching me shit. People were trying not to die at my school and get shot and stabbed and fucking beat up. And so no one gave a fuck. And then when I went to the better school my last year, it was a little better, but no one gave a fuck. Like, and so my point is, is that I didn't have a carved out path. No one expected shit from me. Um, this is not to say they're not proud of me. They just didn't expect shit from me. And I didn't expect shit of myself other than, dude, there's something else out there and you don't know what it is, but you got to find it. And along the way, I fucked up. I did everything wrong. I, 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 I fucked up. It took me forever to get my undergrad degree. Um, I, I worked as a mechanic throughout college. I applied to med school. I got rejected from everywhere my first round. Um, I, I just didn't know what the fuck I wanted to do or how to do it. And finally, it dawned on me like, I can like more than just medicine. Like that was my problem. I thought I had to find what I wanted to do forever because that's how it's supposed to work. And I always loved medicine because I was always sick as a kid. I mean, and, and when I say sick, I mean like that includes like I would break shit. I blew a knee out. I broke my arm. I, I fucking broke my nose a bunch of times just being an asshole. And I, I just was always around doctors and it freaked me out that when I went into a room, I felt like they knew more about me than I knew about myself. And I didn't like that shit. Mm -hmm. And they would talk to my mom about me and I'd be like, motherfucker, I'm right here. Like you could ask me like what my boogers look like. You don't need to ask her. She don't, you know, she's the lady that feeds me. She don't know shit about what's going on with me. And I just always felt like I was excluded from a process that was very personal. And that was really like my fascination until one lady, doctor, I thought she was a doctor. It turns out she's a fucking physician's assistant. Not that that's a bad thing, but I called her doctor and she never stopped me. Um, <laughs> but uh, her, her name was Mary Olson. And I walked in one day and I used to have really bad allergies and I, I was embarrassed. I hated it. I was always fucking snotty nosed and shit. And she sat down and she gave me like the stethoscope. She let me listen to her lungs and she goes, all right, now I'm going to listen to yours. And then she'd like fucking look in my ear and she said, all right, now look in mine. And then she explained it to me. She said, you got a booger factory in your nose and your booger factory just never stops. And I, we got some medicine that could help slow down your booger factory. And I was like, all right, I get that shit. And, and it was so stupid of an explanation, but for some reason I felt like, She's doing this in a way that I wish it would have always been done because now I started to care about my own well-being. Before, it was like they talked to my mom and then they'd give some fucking prescription. They'd give it to me and then I just did what they told me to. And that just stuck with me. There was no like fucking crazy uh, altruistic, I want to give back to the community. No, it was none of that shit in the beginning. And the problem was if you said you wanted to be a doctor in my family, they mocked you. Oh, this motherfucker. 
this motherfucker wants to be a doctor. I'll never forget when I went back from college, we were going to the mall and my fucking uncle, we're walking to the mall and I'll never forget it. He was behind me and I walked up to the front door of the mall and instead of like pulling, I pushed or instead of pushing, I pulled whatever it was. And this motherfucker behind me goes, a doctor. And I, I remember being like, see, this is, this is, this is the problem. And, and now I get it, right? He felt threatened. He felt uncomfortable. I reminded him of all his failed attempts to be successful. I reminded him of all the shit he fucking dropped the ball on. I get it now. But it was so hurtful to me at that time because I was already insecure and scared. And, you know, the, the one person, this is the same guy that when he found out I was taking chemistry, he goes, oh, motherfucker, you taking chemistry so you could teach me how to cook crack then? Like, this was a real question. Like, oh, teach you how to cook crack. Like, what part of the book do you think that's in? What the fuck is wrong with you? And why would you even put me in that position even if I did know how to cook crack? Like, you would have me risk everything I'm doing. So I remember feeling real abandoned, real, like, fucking just lost. And then I'd get to school and people's parents went to college. I remember hearing that shit and being like, yo, I don't belong here. None of this shit is for me because we were in line about to register for some classes. And I'll never forget it. This girl in front of me pulled out her cell phone, called her mom and said, Ma, what did you take your second semester? And I remember just like I wanted to cry, to be honest, because I was like, yo, I, I can't call my fucking mom. If I call my mom right now and say, hey, Ma, what did you take your second semester? My mom's first question would be like, motherfucker, are you drunk? What's a semester? And what are you talking about? So, so, and again, this isn't to take anything away from my mom. My mom is one of the most gangster motherfuckers I know. I don't know how she raised fucking four horrible kids and a bunch of cousins on fucking $12,000 a year while working two jobs that paid her dog shit. You know, so my mom's hustle is strong. I get my hustle from my mom. But the truth is that that hustle wasn't going to get me through college. It was deeper than that hustle. And I just felt exposed every step. I'd move up a year. And I was dumber than I was the year before. And I, I remember thinking, like, this is supposed to get easier. I got to med school. I was the dumbest I've ever been in med school. Like, I didn't know shit. And it hurt. Like, I bred a contempt for school. I didn't want to learn. I wanted to get the fuck out and help people because this shit didn't make me feel good. But along the way, and I really regret not becoming friends with Reesh in med school sooner. Um, but it wasn't under our control. We were different years. We didn't care for each other initially, really. It was a weird sort of... It's not that we hated each other. It was just our run-ins were kind of awkward. Um, they were all testosterone-fueled and shit, you know? And Pick up basketball. Yeah, pick up basketball. And really, the backdrop to all of this is the whole time I was producing music, hip-hop, and shit through college because that's what I loved. And we got... We got pretty far. I mean, we were like in talks with record labels. We were, you know, getting like imprint deals. And we were doing well. But that wasn't stable. There was no comfort in that business. There was, you know, we were just dudes who liked to do it, which is all fun. But I wasn't going to go home after having my family feel the way. That, and, and this is I don't want this to be misconstrued. I don't hold any of this against my family. They were as scared for me as I was for myself. They didn't want me to go out into the world, get chewed up and spit back in their lap. You know, they wanted me to stay in the comfort of, of the home and get a little job and I'm smart. So then I'm not going to get fired. I'll be a good manager at fucking McDonald's. I'll be all right, which is true. I'll be all right. There's nothing wrong with those jobs, but it was wrong for me. So I needed something stable. I needed something tangible and I needed to be able to go home and say, mom, I'm a lawyer. 
mom, I'm a doctor. You see, I did it, you know, and that was what kind of kept me motivated in the darkest of moments when, cause I dropped out of med school, like every weekend, every weekend I was like, fuck this. I'm not going back. But along the way I knew like, God damn it, man. I love other things infinitely more than I love medicine. And don't get me wrong. I do love medicine. I love learning about this shit. I love using my knowledge to help others. That's great. But it wasn't everything. And that for a long time had me feeling very lost because I always say that getting to med school is like getting behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz. And you figure out it's just that old bastard with a bunch of fucking levers. And you're like, the jig is up, dude. This shit. Med school's whack. The lectures are terrible. I thought like I got to the, the pinnacle of higher education. I'm supposed to the lectures are supposed to be amazing. There's not supposed to be feelings of them wasting my time. This is supposed to be efficient, top notch. And I remember the whole time, if you had to ask me, like, what's your one thought that sums up med school for you? It is this. There's got to be a better way to do this. Like, that's what I spent most of my time thinking. Like, fuck, man, there's got to be a better way to do this. So that idea of there's got to be a better way to do this, I think, personally, is what kicked it off for Rish and I to work together. Because unbeknownst to me, he was sitting in his room thinking the same thing. There's got to be a fucking better way to do this. And we're surrounded by a bunch of nerds. And I think the difference there was if you're raised in an upper middle class family, um, they tell you, hey, man, you got to do good in elementary school. OK, like, don't fuck around because you got you, you want to be ready for high school because high school is where it counts. And then they say, OK, so they read and they read and they read and they get to high school and they say, hey, now's not the time to fuck around. Right. You need to focus because if you don't do well in high school, college is not for you and you're not going to get into a good school. All right. All right. Right. So they're serious. They fucking study. They get to college in college. They say this is no time to develop a personality. You got to get to med school. So fucking hit the books before you know it. You have the doctor that we all know that fucking nerd that if he wasn't your doctor, you would never wish to speak to him because fuck that guy. He's weird and he's, you know, he's, he's just, you're not going to be homies with him. Well, he doesn't speak your language, of course not. Right, so right. You need someone who does speak your language to get the message through in a way that is accessible. That's right. something that, uh, that your station, uh, that your podcast, Medicine Remix, has in common with the great everything. This intent of making... That's a great point. Whatever, whatever we do, in your case, it's medicine. In my case, it's sort of more cultural side, but making it accessible. It's talking about it in a way that actually reaches people because that's the whole point, right? Otherwise, what are we doing? What are we talking? Who are we talking to? Why are we even talking if we yeah. can't understand each other? I mean, so, and this is this is a genuine question, Patrick. Do right. you read? Do you read things and you think to yourself, it feels like you discovered it? Like, fuck, man, everybody needs to hear this. I, I think we all have that experience, right? I don't believe that. I don't believe everybody does. I think people reach it and say like, okay, I need to memorize that for the test. Yeah, well, that's definitely an attitude that you encounter a lot at school. I mean, I think it's, uh, it has something to do with the fact that it's not something that you're necessarily doing for pleasure, but that you have to do it. There's like a, you know, there's a schedule of things that you have to learn by a certain time. There's deadlines and you have to learn it in a certain way. And so for many, it actually is less effort to just regurgitate it rather than actually absorb it and metabolize right. it and properly make it their own. And once you've made it your own, of course, you have that freedom to speak about it any way you want, you know, in yeah. any terms you want. You can make connections. You can make it about, you can make connections between what you studied and your breakfast or about some movie you watched or some hip hop track. But when you don't have it, when you don't own the, the subject matter, then then of course you're, you're very limited in the ways you can express it because you can only express it the way you've learned it. 
because uh, sure. your understanding of it doesn't go beyond the confines of the way you've learned it. So is that it's interesting that uh, you you sort of um, you should bring it to medicine remixed at that point. There's a sort of this project that comes in part from a need to express what you're learning in a way that is more understandable, that is cooler, that is a bit more down to earth. So I'd like to just quickly ask Reach then. Sure. So what is Medicine Remixed? I feel like it's it's really come to mean, it's like that Jay-Z line, you know, triple entendre, don't even ask me how. <laughs> I feel like medicine in itself can be so many different things. There's so many different contexts to it. You know, pills are medicine. That's a form of medicine. Surgery is a, a form of medicine. But also, like, humor is a form of medicine. You know, they say laughter is the best medicine. Mm. You know, motivation is a medicine. Like, things that make you better, essentially, in, in whatever the context may be, whether, like, mental or physical. And I feel like my upbringing was almost the exact opposite. My mom would be telling me since like the fifth grade, basically telling me like the goal was to get into one of these combined medical programs where you basically like apply out of high school and then you basically are guaranteed a spot in medical school right out of high school. And some of the programs you'll have to take the MCAT and the MCAT is the, you know, admission test for medical school. That's like the traditional thing. Like when you're in college, you take the MCAT and, you know, you apply to medical school and they look at your grades and stuff. But kind of like the back door, you know, this, this thing that only like a few people knew about, you know, there were six year programs, seven year programs or eight year programs, meaning you'd either have like two years of undergrad and four years of med school, three years of undergrad and four years of med school or the traditional four years of undergrad and the four years of med school. So basically, like from a very early age, it was just like, that was the goal. You have to get into one of those because then you're guaranteed a spot into medical schools. So that I, it just became like, you know, an obsessive thing after after a while, like, you know, in, in high school and like so many other people like around me too, you know, kind of doing that, just kind of being pulled by this wave of achievement and also like hearing, you know, what you were supposed to do. And it's not a very uncommon, you know, Indian American, like first generation Indian, South Asian and Asian immigrant kid story of like, you know, what you're supposed to be and how you're going to get respected in the community, but also, you know, that's the path. In the same way that in Dee's story, it was like, you know, you're going to work at JCPenney or Macy's, you know, that being the parallel in the world that I grew up in, which was, you know, very different. I, it's just so interesting how Dee and I, I feel like we really are like the yin and yang of this whole like medicine remix thing, because we come from two very, very different backgrounds and experiences. Like, you know, you hear his story coming up in the environment that he came up and me the exact opposite you know privilege almost being like a crippling kind of a, a thing like that I felt like just so guilty that I never had to struggle and my parents gave me everything they gave me every fucking thing and I didn't have to struggle for shit because I saw where my dad came from remembering his come up and seeing him build something out of nothing I idolized that and I was like if the only way that I can you know repay you for giving me everything is doing this thing that's so important to you for whatever reason I just really wanted it to be what I wanted to do also I would take these like career inventories and I would basically like cheat on them because like I knew what the questions were leading to so like by the end of it you know I wanted wanted it to tell me that I was supposed to be a doctor, even though like none of my behavior 
growing up, like math to that. I wasn't like super into science or any of that stuff. Like, you know, I was mm. always way more into music, art. I did way better in like, you know, social studies and English. Like I was a really good writer. But, you know, the environment that I grew up in, you know, I was telling you about this combined medical program. I got into this eight year program where I was guaranteed a spot in medical school after holding a certain GPA for the four years of undergrad. You know, I, I studied psychology and I studied abroad. I went to Argentina and, you know, studied public health there. And it was so interesting because like I, I wanted to learn Spanish in a you know medical setting. And so I would volunteer in the emergency rooms down there and I would be talking to the residents and they would say like a typical doorman down there makes as much money as a doctor. And I just remember thinking like to myself, why the fuck would anybody want to be a doctor down there? And now I think about those moments and I'm just like, oh, like those people really wanted to fucking do medicine. Like, you know, they weren't doing it for the money. But like, I feel like so many people do medicine for the wrong fucking reasons. The reasons being like, you know, my parents wanted me to do it. I joke and say like, you know how they say like medicine is supposed to be a calling. I feel like for me, it was more of a telling, you know, like you were channeled into a sort of a path uh, just through a series of uh, successive steps, most of which were kind of done on autopilot, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, one, one leading to the next. Yeah, that, that, that's um, that's kind of typical, isn't it? In in this sort of um, Western middle class society, and and this and the kind of idea or ideology that um, that it forces us all to live in, even if we're not necessarily part of the middle class. But there's this ideology of how things are done, as you expressed it earlier, that kind of forces our, us to take paths where the steps are successive, but they're all sort of um, pre-programmed and you don't really have to do much thought. I always said that um, in, in the UK, becoming a lawyer, and I think this is probably applicable to the US, is just what you do when you finish college and you don't know what you want to do. It's just, you know, it's, it, there's a mindlessness to it, right? There's a, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a mindlessness to it. Oh, you know, that's just what you do. You, you exit college, you don't know what's, what's up. Well, you do some law school and you get a job with a big law firm, you make some money and you're respected, but you never actually sit down to think about it because it just seems like a, a natural solution. In some ways, just like uh, Dee was saying, when uh, his friend Brian said, well, duh, this is what you do. You go to college and you got GPA like that. There's, um, there's a sort of uh, procedure that is put in place that can work for some, but can also lead you away from perhaps what is your true calling if you have such a thing. But I'd just like to step things back slightly to the initial question. Mm -hmm. So from what you guys both are saying, obviously you're both doctors, but it seems that you, Dee, you had to overcome a way of thinking within your family within your circumstances sure. that actually was going to lead you away from becoming a professional whereas uh, Rish kind of floated into it the same way I floated into being a lawyer he came <laughs> at it from an environment where that was the kind of thing you had to do yeah so the, as you say the yin and yang situation where one one of you had to really go for it and the other one just uh, fell into it <laughs> that's not disparaging to you Rish it's just but my question is you're also collaborating on a project a creative project together yeah. and so that indicates to me that this project clearly has a different weight within each of your individual lives in Rish's case it, it seems like it might have the role of an escape from something you know the, the actual independent choice thing like I'm going to do this because this is what I really want. Whereas what is it for you, D? Is it mm. something that you want to have alongside your career as a doctor? 
Yeah, it's it's funny that you well not funny it's 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 uh, actually quite insightful that you you pick up on that because I you know I often uh, after you know uh, Reese and I will have a, a random conversation about goals for the next year whatever it is and in my mind I don't know how Reese feels about it but I think in terms of you know where do you see medicine remixed in ten years I think ultimately we see the same thing because we see us doing well and we see this being a thing that people give a shit about at the end of the day that's what i think we both uh see but i think reese's enmeshment with it if that's a word uh, he's he's very he needs it and i like that because and i don't mean this in any way that one's better than the other but he needs it and it drives him i am it if that makes sense i am hip-hop i've never been anything but i never felt like i wanted to belong i always was but by virtue in the same way that he was privileged enough to fall into medicine i fell into hip-hop i grew up in poverty i that was our music that was our lifestyle that was what we did i didn't appreciate that till i left i didn't realize that we were a bunch of hip-hop heads me and my friends we were a bunch of kids who lived in my neighborhood who happened to listen to the same music and like the same clothes but it wasn't a culture thing to me it was my life. Yeah. It was, you know, it was what I did. No one looked at me strange bumping Tupac. Like that's that's what we did. Oh, you like NWA? Of course you do, stupid. Like that that's that was what we did. So to step away from that and really look at it and like from Reese's point of view, I was fascinated by the fact that he was fascinated by the culture. You know, it was it was like that's crazy. Like He's got no, he doesn't have to. He could like whatever the fuck he wants. And he does. He likes other shit. He likes all types of music. But his, his, his sort of connectedness and, and yearning to, to, to understand and, and to appreciate and to contribute, it made me appreciate my place more. Because, you know, in the way you notice, like our feeling towards this project is probably different. I would have never guessed that. But Patrick, you're looking at it from the outside of two dudes who are very different and wondering like well what's what's their motor like for this thing like what's driving them what's fueling this and i don't see it that way i don't um i don't think that hard about it and in terms of what it is to me I, honestly i couldn't i wouldn't be happy if i wasn't doing this and i genuinely mean that and i don't mean just like right. if if you if you wipe the board clean and said okay no more medicine remix are, are you ever going to be happy again well no i will because i'm going to find another channel for it but right now this whole project you know it started off as injury duty morphed into uh medicine remix i won't be happy without it i'm not happy without it and mm. the reason i feel like i'm not happy without it because it's me right every day in a professional setting is one more day that i feel the the universe is trying to force the culture out of me and I won't let it happen. I just can't. I'll, I'll die. I'll be useless to medicine and hip hop. Right. So we've actually got something here that um, that we're starting to move towards. What kind of uh, is the main my main point of interest in this conversation? At the end of the day, what I think is useful, right, is something that people who listen in can can relate to directly. And I think that that tension that I was talking about at the beginning between being in a profession and having certain expectations, whether those expectations are coming from the outside, you know, from your circumstances, from your family or background, society, or whether, coming, or whether they're coming from within because you're actually overcoming 
obstacles in the way of attaining that. The point is that there's pressures pointing in a certain direction. And a lot of people feel this. And a lot of people, I believe, especially people who are on uh, platforms such as Anchor, want to have that kind of creative space, that outlet. And they might be thinking in terms of, okay, how do I make that jump? How do I make space within my life for a project that I've always dreamed of or a project that I don't quite have the, um, the outline of if, in my mind? It's not very formed, but I feel that there's something there that's pulling me towards it. And, and there's this tension between my job and this project. And so what I'm trying to get here is what can they learn from your experience of creating this and finding its place within your lives, either as a full-time job or as something as you do alongside your job. That's, that's kind of the crux of it for me because I think so many people are terrified of making a leap, like the kind of thing you're doing, even if it's just like a side project because it needs time, it needs dedication, it means putting yourself out there. So what can they learn from your experience, Dean Rich? I think the big thing, you know, for me, you know, in kind of hearing my stream of consciousness fucking life story that I told you is intent means everything. Like one of the things I never really asked for a long time was why I was doing what I was doing. You know, I've been obsessed with this idea of just like intuition, you know, like how do you get better at that? Like how do you how do you listen to your gut more? Like how, how can you mm, pay attention mm. to these like feelings of like, you know, if I'm sick to my stomach when I set foot in a classroom or, you know, a, a hospital or a clinic, like, you know, that feeling versus like the feeling of how I feel when like I'm DJing a party or like creating stuff for Medicine Remixed or like, you know, things that you're just like intrinsically drawn towards paying attention to, to that more, like getting sharper at making decisions based on how you feel about it. Like, do you genuinely love this thing that you're doing? And does it put you on fire? I feel like that's why so many doctors too, like, you know, burn out in anything for that matter is like, huh. you know, it's become this thing where it's just like, there's so many pieces that are out of your control. And that's another big thing that we're all trying to find is like that ability to be able to like control our own destiny, you know? And I feel like now is such an interesting time to be able to do that. Even just telling your story and talking about the things that put you on fire, the things that you genuinely love. I think the moment where I realized that, holy shit, medicine, I just started noticing in all of the things that I felt like were a huge part of my identity, stand-up comedy, hip hop, sports, pop culture, all these things, like, I just started noticing a pattern of like, holy shit, they have all of these like health related references everywhere. This is like a common thread. And what if we could use this as a way to make this information more accessible to us? And then in turn to the people that we're taking care of or learning how to t take care of. And, you know, throughout this entire process, one of the things that has been a consistent piece of feedback for me is my ability to talk to patients, like the bedside manner thing, but then also taking the time to explain what's going on to them 
in a means that they can understand, like using a celebrity as a case study, kind of drawing from things that they know and explaining these things to them in a way that they can understand, but also doesn't belittle them. Just the serendipity of DNI meeting, because again, we didn't start in the same year and coming from like completely different backgrounds. The fact that we connected and were able to really use the commonalities that we have through our interests. And it was really born out of a creative frustration. When that gets suffocated, which in medicine, it's just like so structured and regimented, going outside of the lines is you know, not tolerated very well. So I think to the question of what can you do, it's like, you can't ignore those feelings that you get. Like your passions are your passions and you have to by any means necessary. And now we have all of the tools available to us at all times. You can connect these different dots. You can connect your passion of like poker and law or like, you know, medicine and hip hop, like all of these things so that you have an outlet. You know, there's like a whole industry kind of around doctors dropping out of medicine. Have you heard of this website, the Dropout Club, DOT? Uh, I don't think so. It's like the entire website is basically like finding jobs for doctors that don't want to like practice uh, yeah. clinical medicine. Yeah, we had something like that in London for lawyers because, you know, we look corporate lawyers, banking lawyers, one of the most <laughs> depressed uh, professions in the city and in New York. So we had to uh, escape the city, escape the city. And it sounds like a fuck, sounds like a fucking Kurt Russell movie. Yeah. Doesn't it? It's just, but um, yeah, no, so that's, uh, that's pretty common. And uh, uh, you guys did an episode on this, didn't you? You did an episode on uh, suicide rates among yeah. doctors. Yeah. At one point. This was a while ago. I remember, I remember that one because, um, because of course my own firm, we had suicides there particularly among partners, which is kind of, that's the big thing, isn't it? When you see the partner, right? The partner, he's the yeah. guy who, as a lawyer, that's who you want to be. He's right. your boss. He is the guy. So when I, I'm not going to go into my whole origin story here, but the, the fact is, you know, one of the big, uh, the, the big drivers for me to become a lawyer at that point in my life, I'd already had a previous career, but it's moving into law was the fact that at one of these mega international law firm they're called the magic circle in london <laughs> yeah, that's their name it sounds like a harry potter thing yeah exactly. the magic circle uh, because like you, the promise was you work there you make partner you make two million bucks a year mm. that's that's like you know that, that that's you're literally a millionaire right. and it's like and it's it's um and it's easy i mean you know in theory it's easy because it's just that step by step stage you know it's that autopilot thing you just have to there's a series of hoops you jump through those hoops boom 2 million a year so that's a that's a big pull and so yeah. when you start as a trainee as a kid you don't know shit you just left law school you start in your training contract you got your suit and you're feeling oh my god dude, i'm like don fucking draper and then you're looking at these larger than life figures these um these millionaires you're surrounded by these millionaires and they're your boss and you're like oh my god the lawyers are so important they're so intelligent they're so rich and that's who i want to be one day and you're amazed by it but then time passes and you notice something first of all you notice that these people they don't look well at all they do not look fulfilled or happy in fact their skin color is a bit off they look constantly like they lack sleep they look stressed out of their fucking minds and um, they've got stomach troubles because if you've ever been, if you ever <laughs> sat in a cubicle at a law firm taking a shit and you've been listening 
to the kind of shits that people are taking the cubicles next to you, <laughs> you know that you've got some very messed up stomachs going on. The levels of stress, the coffee, right. the mm-hmm. eating shit food from boxes at your desk at irregular hours. It's a bad life. And then on top of that, you hear that the partner in Washington, D.C., he uh, fell off the roof of the law firm, you know, in the center mm-hmm. of Washington, D.C. And, you know, these kind of things keep happening. And you're like, this guy who I want to be, He's not very happy at all, is he? Despite him having everything that society says, that if you have this, then you've made it. This is what life is all about. The guy who's got everything that life is all about, he is unhappy, and he might even commit suicide. So that really does leave a big question mark open as to what the fuck am I doing with my life? Right. And so what you're talking about, Rish, is the, the, the solution to that, the medicine for that, is to find an alignment between what you love doing and what you actually do. And that feeling is what should tell you. If you're living, that feeling of dread that you want to avoid and that feeling of pure pleasure and flow and being in the zone that you get right. when you do something you love. And that's also what Dee is saying, if I understand him correctly, of actually just inhabiting what he is and being authentic. And that's also an alignment. It's an ethical principle of being in harmony with oneself mm-hmm. that one should seek for. But then the question is for both of you, okay, We've understood the antidote to this feeling of having to reach certain things because society tells us to. And that is just be yourself, basically, and do what you love doing. But, uh, you know, that sounds like a pipe dream. I've got a mortgage. I've got a kid. I've got responsibilities. How the fuck am I going to leave my job and do something like that? Well, what do you answer to that guy? There's, uh, we, we have, Reese and I have the benefit of not having kids and, and a family that we're providing for. So we have the ability to sort of selfishly say, you know what, I'm going to pursue this and it's going to be fucking hard and I might fuck this whole thing up, you know, tank my finances, but I'm the person who's going to be hurt by that. So I think within context, I think it's only fair to say that. But in my mind, this is all I'm seeing when you're asking me, like, how do we do that? I'm assuming you guys have been at in some position in your life where you, you, you found yourself jumping from like one boat to you know, like there's that weird moment where you make the leap and you, you're pushing off with the foot from the boat you're on to make you it. You haven't to, reached the other one. And there's that moment where you, you're not holding on to either side. And not only are you not holding on to either side, you push the side you were on away from you. And yeah, you're technically falling. Yeah, you're, you're fucked right there. And you can, you can be frozen in that moment in time and feel that way. But I think you do that knowing that you covered all your bases, you measured uh, in your mind, you took some quick, you know, assessments of, all right, how's this going to work? All right, cool, go. You didn't plan to fall. You didn't say like, when I fall in the water, if I do fall, I'll swim to this, you know, deck, I'll do, you didn't do all that. You took the leap anyway. And that's because you have faith in yourself. That's the only reason. Even if people say like, no, well, that's not why I did it. I just wanted to get to the other boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair. But you had faith in yourself that you'd make it. And if you didn't make it, you'd figure it out. That potential to end up in the water didn't cripple you. It didn't paralyze you. And granted, it's not this monumental decision and life-changing moment to hop from one boat to another. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that same sort of faith in yourself that I'm going to be fine. I don't think we take we 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 find comfort in that enough. And I think 
the reason we don't, it's numerous why, there's numerous reasons why. Some are part of the system, the way it's set up. You don't want everybody taking risks. This would be a crazy fucking cowboy world to live in if everybody was, uh, you know, gambling on penny stocks and fucking buying Bitcoin. This shit would be crazy, right? But I, at the same time, you asked something earlier, like what's this push for people to want to be creative now? Like where's, we're like, where's this coming from? I really think that, I think there's this weird sort of systemic feeling of getting back to like handcrafted things like you know mm. e everything says like artisan fucking bread what the fuck does that even mean i don't know but it sounds like my grandma's back there baking that shit right it it, it sounds like handcrafted meats what the fuck is a handcrafted meat i the the point is is somebody put their entire being this is what they do. This is what they know. You, you know what that means, really? Authentic, uh, handcrafted, yes, artisanal. Yes. Ultimately, this is all code for non-corporate. Right, exactly. But non corporate But what does this that mean? This is not mean Starbucks. At, what does that mean at its core? That means that we're not trying to manipulate you. We're giving you just good stuff. If you want it, take it. If you don't, no, don't. No, no, no. It's telling you that behind it, there's real people, right. not, a not a faceless corporation, but there's right. a guy who picked up the bread and he sliced exactly. it in. And, 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 or, or, you know, there's a guy who was pouring his soul out on, in, into a microphone. Or right. the, the point is, there wasn't message behind it. There wasn't, uh, there, there wasn't a marketing execs. There's none of that. This is, this is as Mother Nature intended. Right. And that's, uh, that's the drive towards authenticity. And, uh, and so what, how does that, how does that manifest itself Bec in because, the world of things like podcasting and blogging and stuff like that? Because mm -hmm. even that, even knowing that, right, because you're right. When I see fucking artisan bread, I don't panic and pull over and feel like I need to support the local baker. That's a, that's kind of a ploy as well, right? That's, that's part of a, yeah, yeah. a, a campaign. That's a new branding thing. Right. But the reason they're doing that, they're not doing that because they're throwing away money and it doesn't work. They're doing that because they know that there's something intrinsic there. We're all feeling this idea that this shit got away from us. The pendulum has swung a little too far. And when I say that, I mean that for all things, because I really hate when people say like, I love a good conspiracy just as much as anybody else. But, you know, people will talk about like, oh, factory farming and, and preservatives and all this shit and, and and, uh, you know, uh, all these Lunchables for kids, it's the fucking, you know, people want to poison your kids and dumb people down. That's not what that is at all. What that is, can you imagine, I wanted to try this. I wanted to eat foods that would only be in season in my part of the world at the time that I wanted them. So like if I wanted a sandwich right now, I'd have to ask myself, uh, 200 years ago, would tomatoes be growing here right now? No? All right, I can't have a tomato then. What would be growing here? Jesus, and, D. Right, well, no, <laughs> the reason, the reason I'm, I, I wanna do that is because what I'm not appreciating is the amount of avenues that got open in terms of just variety based on the ability to factory farm shit, the ability to streamline shit to me and get it on a truck and have somebody you know spray pesticides and shit on something to allow it to grow in my region and provide it with all the supplements and shit and the dirt. So I can grow a fucking chili pepper. But at some point, I think it got away from us. The idea that you can put meat in a can and not have to refrigerate it. Do you know how fucking amazing that is? If you just go back 200 years, not even 200 years, 80 years. That is fucking amazing. People were allowed to live and not have to worry that if we have a freeze over, our crops are fucked. 
All our fucking animals are dying. We're dead. This isn't a matter of we can't provide and buy a flat screen. No, no, no. We're dead. So, so is the point that you're making the fact that that this authenticity drive, you know, it's it's sound it sounds good, but we shouldn't like overestimate it. And don't don't it, put it, too it, much on your plate. Like understand that it got away from us. But how does that translate back to just being creative? I think this is my point. I think if you're forced to provide sustenance for yourself, you're gonna appreciate uh, watermelon that he grows way more if you know that he labored over it. You're gonna be like, oh, Patrick grows some fucking bomb ass watermelon. I wonder if he'll trade me for my bomb ass cucumbers, right? Because I found my niche. I'm something I'm good at, something people want. They appreciate it. For whatever or, reason, I'm good at it. It's my gift, call it whatever you want. Cucumbers. And, uh, and cucumbers. But, <laughs> so I don't lose the, that whole circle. There's a, a documentary uh, called Still Bill. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, no. It's Bill Withers. Oh, yes. Yeah, this is the guy fucking, you know, ain't no sunshine, grandma's yeah. hands, lean mm -hmm. on me, <laughs> fucking use me. He's got this wonderful documentary, and it, it's just about his life. Like, he, he didn't start recording professional music till he was like 40 years oh, old. Oh, yeah, I heard about this. He was installing toilets on fucking jumbo airplanes. That, yeah. And he, he would be singing while he was doing fucking toilets, and people would be like, hey, man, you're kind of badass. He didn't know how to, he doesn't know how to read music. He doesn't know how to write music. He just knows what good music is. And somebody says, maybe you should try fucking recording an album. And he's like, all right, fuck it. Maybe I'll try it. He tries it. He fucking blows up. He writes all these songs. And then he just stops. He just stops. And people are like, hey, whatever happened to Bill Withers? They're like, hey, man, why'd you stop recording? And he says, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I just didn't feel inspired anymore. And he even says, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm depressed. I don't know. But I just... I'm not inspired anymore. And they, then they, they smash cut to his band members and they're like, tell that motherfucker to get inspired because we need to make some money. Like he just disappeared like right in the, in the thick of it. We could have been rich, like touring all over the place. And he just, he bailed out. But in that documentary, they show his daughter and his daughter wants to start singing. And I mean, what a fucking torture that is, right? Your dad's Bill motherfucking Withers and you want to start singing? And he says this thing where he, he never really gets involved with her music. He doesn't really listen to her. And he says, I just said to her, hey, if you want to do this, do it. And you, wherever you are in your life, you need to stop and look around and just appreciate where you are because this might be as good as you get. And that's okay because it's what you want to do. And I think that is the type of shit we appreciate. When I say we, I mean the three on this call because the Joe Rogans of the world. That's why we appreciate them because they got big because we enjoy them. They didn't get big because they aspired to be big. And I think that's the balance that you try to strike. That handcrafted thing, you can't handcraft for the whole world. Handcraft implies it's, it's limited, man. You're not going to be able to get to everybody. It almost implies a, a limited edition sort of feeling. Do you ever see that on a car? Limited edition Eddie Bauer? Mm -hmm. What the fuck does that mean? They want me to believe it means three, right? But we know it means three million. But the idea is that it's limited because somebody's poured their heart into it and knew that they wasn't going to be able to get to everybody. And that's okay. But they want to do it. And they want to convey it to you as they enjoy it, as they love it. The craft, whether it be a, a knife, a pair of jeans, doesn't matter. You can apply that handcrafted shit to anything because there's something in it that we know we yearn for. And in my opinion... I think it's worth and purpose. And at the end of the day, 
I've said it before. I think I said it in a text message. I might be wrong, but if I really think about my my life's goal, and I've always thought about this because unfortunately for another call, I've always been fascinated by death, my own death. Ever since I was a kid, I don't know why. It's impending every day. I feel like I'm one day closer to dying, which I am, but yeah. I feel it. And it, and it, and it pushes me to want to be better because my, t my time's up. It's going to be up. And I think at the end of the day, I honestly feel my life's goal is when I fucking die, man, I hope I really, really dream and hope that one person, just one person has a moment in their house, sitting on, in their recliner. They think to themselves when they find out that I died, fuck, who's going to replace that guy? Jesus, who do you send that text to? <laughs> I, I think I want to say that it was us. I want to say we, there was some random thing and I, and I threw it out there and I, I don't think you guys responded. I think <laughs> because it's fucking heavy and it's almost, it's too much and it's almost, uh, it feels cliche even when I say it, but, but that's really. Uh, no, it, but, but it, it doesn't feel cliche at all. It's, 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 um, it's something that we all aspire to. The idea of actually making some kind of difference to even a single person's life to have had to have touched it to to have been known by them perhaps not necessarily personally but uh, to have had some kind of impact and made some change that's uh that is uh, i mean if it is a cliche it's simply because it is universal that's like that tupac interview he says i'm not saying that i'm going to change the world Right, but I'm gonna spark the mind but that I, changes yeah, the world. Yeah. Exactly. That's what yeah. we should all be aspiring to. Just that, you know. Because there's some selflessness in that. You know, that's like I, I'm not gonna be appreciated, and that's fine. You know, and I don't know who the person's gonna be that's gonna appreciate what I say, but they're out there, and I'm gonna operate on that assumption. I'm not finding them. I'm not looking for them. They're out there, and I think there's there's something there. I don't know what it is, but there's something to that. It's an authentic message because the, the, the prepackaged message, it's, it, the message is out there. It's everywhere. You can, you can go and find a movie with a, with a theme, with a quote. With, that's all out there. We can find there's some wonderful movies, great quotes, great songs, great poems, great books. But if it doesn't feel authentic, it's, it's, it's never going to get where you hope it to get, if that's your goal, to really spark the change in other people. I just, I think we're getting better at that. More people are getting sucked into phony superficialness, but I think there's another side to that coin. And there's people searching and yearning for the authenticness of it all. The ability now that we all have with these tools and how connected we are, at the very least, like tell your story. And you don't have to tell everybody else's story, tell your story. And now more than ever, we have the ability to, you know, tell our stories and kind of close that gap a little bit of like, oh, that's what my doctor is going through. And on the flip, too, it's like, oh, that's, you know, what my patient's going through. So much of this is just we're not communicating. And now communication is the most revolutionized it's ever been. The fact that you can with your voice, with, you know, just something as simple as your voice, without all the bells and whistles, even to affect change in someone, that's that spark that we're you know, talking about, that's medicine. That is medicine, you know, remixed. You know, I think fundamentally it comes out with, you know, putting out information and packaging information and communicating it in a way that can spark that change. What is the change that you guys want to affect? Getting through to as many people as possible through the various vehicles of, of media to 
get people to learn about themselves and to be able to take from popular culture the things that people are paying attention to and kind of repackaging this information that we've sacrificed all of this time and you know whatnot to to learn and to be able to like distill it in a way that you know people understand their disease process like what they're doing the choices that they're making learning about this stuff knowing about this stuff like having an interest so like to really be able to you know educate as many people as possible in the modern world i think also just opening that channel between doctor and patient from both sides to kind of tell their stories and hopefully as as a result we'll be able to get as close to that ideal as possible. And how does hip hop fit into that? It's like the, the way that I describe it, I think the best is like, you know, when parents like when they're trying to give medicine to their kids, like in a taste like shitty, you're like mixing it with like pudding or like, you know, ice cream or something to like to make it taste better. I feel like that's kind of what we're doing. Mm, so it's the, the, the hip hop is just the means or the message is still the medicine. I don't know. I mean, I, what do you think? Dave? You know, I, I think it's a good question and as you were talking reach i was thinking the same like can i tease those apart and i can't and i don't think i would i don't think i think that's the beauty for me that is the line so fucking blurred in terms of like what part of this is hip-hop and i think again either i'm lazy because i don't want to explore the idea anymore or it is uh it's too intertwined and tangled for me to pull apart. I am hip hop. Everything I do is hip hop. And that goes for my most formal of presentations to other doctors or med students or whatever the case is, or something I do for us, or even, you know, this conversation, I have to bring that with me because that's what I am. What part of that is, you know, specifically hip hop, obviously, you know, there's gross uses of it, right? We use, uh, you know, hip hop music. And, but I think to your point, Rish, I can't think of another musical genre that's used to sell everything. Fucking cheeseburgers. There's always some fucking hip hop shitty beat that they're trying to put to it. You know, uh, it, you name it. ESPN. Like it's it's ubiquitous. And I think Buster Rhymes said it, right? It's probably the only musical genre that makes people rich that don't even love the shit. Yeah. There's nobody that I know that works like with country music and fucking hates it. But there's, I know a lot of people who work in industries that they're very hip hop, whether it be the, the style of clothing or the look of, of, you know, a car or whatever. They don't necessarily like hip hop, but that's kind of what they're trying to use as their brand to push it. And that's interesting. I think there's a reach to it that I can't tease it apart. I don't know where it stops and where it starts and where it ends with me. It is, it is me. I look for it in all things. There's something that I've always, it's kind of embedded and just the way I think, I've always wanted to make learning cool again. And by saying that, that sounds uncool already. Yeah. And you know, that's sort of like when your mom uses, like if you ever caught your mom using like the word dope or something, it'd be like, nah, mom, like you just, you don't, you don't get to use that word because it, right. it, it doesn't feel right. And I think that's the problem when you put on that white coat, nothing you say feels hip hop because you're so far removed and, and, Unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm in a specialty that I have to talk a lot more than most doctors. And sometimes my words are the medicine, you know, and I think that's true for all of us. Words can always be medicine, but it's literally part of repertoire. 
Like I sometimes am only going to use words. That's when I get to see my impact and I get to watch the worlds of medicine and people's well-being and hip hop actually not collide, but fuse together because people's bullshit meters, especially when they're scared and especially when they're vulnerable are so finely tuned in because at that point, everything feels like a threat to a lot of my patients in, in, in the moment in the life that I, you know, in their life that I crossed paths with them. It, it shit's crumbling most times for them. And what I say always runs the risk of sounding like some corny doctor shit. But if you guys could hear the way I talk to my patients, you guys would probably be worried if you read it. If you just saw it on paper, you'd be like, hey man, probably shouldn't talk like that. But if you were there, I'm, I'm supremely confident that you'd be like, hey man, that was a really good way to say that. Because it's not about the words on paper. It's about how I'm saying it. And that's the part that's hard. That's what I think like the sort of amorphous part of hip hop. It's like, like that, who's that fucking Supreme Court judge who was talking about pornography and said, you know, when he sees it, he knows what it is, but it's hard to describe. Right. Yeah. I, th that's sort of the way I feel about that hip hop. That was Antonin Scalia. Yeah, Scalia. And that's the way I feel about hip hop. It's hard for me to describe it. And even when I do describe it and give a definition for it, it sounds not thorough enough. It sounds corny. It sounds, uh, you know, overdone. It's never just right. And I think that that's the part where, where I get to see it a lot more in practice in terms of like in clinic where I get to see my idea of having people feel, dude, I used to hide my books. Patrick, I don't know if I ever told you this. I, on my way home from school, I used to dump my books in the, in the bushes so my, my friends wouldn't see me walking with books. You're like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, like with uh, carrying his books in his pizza box. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. I literally there was a church right by our house, and and I in my stupid like you know fifth grade thinking, I would I would dump my books in the bushes at the church because I would think nobody's gonna steal from the church. Like so, I'm gonna I'm gonna put them there. And I remember one summer I forgot about the book, and it just fucking I I went back like years later, it was still there, spider webs and shit and bugs all in it. But it was still there. So I guess my theory was right. People wouldn't steal from the church, uh, at least from the bushes for books. But I was afraid to, to, that people would think I wanted to learn. Tell you why. Because my neighborhood, you would get robbed for your sneakers. Some, somebody would run up on you. And if you had some Jordans on, there's a good chance you might get cut up for them. But they could steal that from you. If you had a pretty girlfriend, someone in that neighborhood who was bigger than you, stronger than you, would come slap her on the ass just to remind you. You ain't shit, and I could take your girl. If you had a nice car, they would key that shit up. And the one thing that you could do to somebody to make them feel like an asshole that they couldn't take from you was make them feel dumb. And if you were in class and they respected you because you fought out on the playground or you stole a, 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 a you know, you broke into a house or some dumb shit that I used to do, and they respected you like on a street level. But then in the classroom, you were making them look dumb because you're supposed to be just as hood as them, but you know all the capitals of all 50 states. Well, what you're doing is you're reminding them of what they suck at, what they don't have, what they're not good at. And that's just not cool either. So I never raised my hand. I knew a lot of shit. I never raised my hand. I still don't raise my hand. I never did, even when I know something, because I beat that out of myself. And I didn't want to make people, I didn't want to remind people, you know, of the time in class when, remember when you used to have to read out loud and shit and they'd go around the classroom 
And then your, your paragraph would come up and I would get all nervous and shit because I didn't want to like come up on a word I didn't know. But at the same time, I didn't want to read at all. And I just wouldn't read and then I'd get in trouble. It was so dumb. But there was in some part of my computing, I understood that you don't want to be smart, man. Because the only way you can make somebody feel dumb when they're smart is beat the shit out of them. And, and that was a legitimate fear of mine. So I'm with you, Reese. One of my goals really is to make fucking knowing shit a good thing. But at the same time, have the streets fuck with you. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And have them want to know how they can be down and know that shit too. Right. You know, because I can, I can just recite shit out of a book. They're not impressed by that. But when I can get them to understand and be intrigued by the same topics I am without using any of the words that are in the book that I read, that's the skill. That's what there's no tutorial for. That's what there's no classroom for. How to translate that shit into shit that they dig, that they understand. And that's where we, that's where Reese and I are hijacking hip hop. We're, we're fucking finding it in everything. Right. We're not, we're not just finding it in hip hop. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> medicine remix fam thank you so much for listening hopefully listeners new and old got something out of that episode and if you did please 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 consider sharing the podcast and writing us a review on itunes it would absolutely mean the entire world to us and also help us spread the word tremendously stay tuned for more amazing interviews and conversations about medicine and culture this upcoming season on medicine remix We'll be putting out more dialogues from our documentary series where we talk to dope doctors doing dope things in and out of medicine. We're also debuting a new interview series soon called Out of Medicine, where we talk to former doctors or medical students who left the profession of medicine to pursue another passion. And we'll also be putting out new episodes from our Off the Record series where we talk to inspiring patients who tell compelling stories about battling their illnesses or the illnesses of their loved ones. Lots of good stuff coming from our studio to your ears on this season of the one and only Medicine Remixed. Listen, we don't have much to go by, so if you guys would please just like and subscribe anywhere you see anything. Medicine Remixed. Like the shit out of it. Just click on it. it doesn't cost you anything. Just move your fat finger and click on it. You're clicking all kinds of other shit at work when you shouldn't be. God damn it. Yeah. But uh, we appreciate it. And that's really, you know, the only surrogate market we have to go by. And listen, the other thing is, fucking tell people about it, man. Tell your friends about us. Tell your friends. I mean, I, I'm always amazed, man, when people think people are famous. Like, I've never been starstruck, ever. And the reason I've never been starstruck is because somebody said to me once, you know, the only reason that person's famous is because you made them famous. Right. I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, stop caring who the fuck that is. Yeah. Watch how famous he is now. And it's yeah. like, holy it's like fuck, we, you're right. We give things meaning, man. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we give words meaning. We give everything, man. Meaning. And when like, people when people think like, oh, you know, my friend's an artist. Uh, he wants to make it big or whatever. You know something? Fucking support that. I mean, if he sucks, he sucks. But if he's even halfway good, man, you make people famous. I don't think people realize that. You make things important. And damn it, make us famous is what we're saying. Fucking tell people. No, but my point is, is that the only way this is going to get out and it's ever going to grow any legs to it is if people tell other people about it. And listen, if you don't like it, thank you for suffering through it. We love you. And if you like it, we'll fucking tell somebody, man. And to be real honest, the feedback that we've gotten back so far, fucking great, man. We appreciate it. Well, We're we- having a good time doing it. And this is our way to be creative within a field that really is an art and a science. 
but the art has been taken out of it yeah. for creative people in medicine and there's a lot of them there's a lot of like super sure, talented man. people absolutely this could be a forum for those people looking for a different right. way to express their craft through a more creative means hit us up yeah alright we love you peace peace